Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. This is just turning into the best volleyball experience I think I've ever created because it's just friends helping friends here. So another cool connection from out west, and I'm excited to pick his brain here. So today's guest is currently an assistant coach with UBC. He's also going to be an assistant coach with the youth national team, which he's been once before. He's the founder of New Wave Volleyball, and he's a provincial and national team, or excuse me, provincial and national champion as a youth athlete and also played university at Thompson Rivers. That's not even his full bio, but we need to start the interview. Please welcome to the show, Matt Kruger. Kruger, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. I'm super pumped to get a, to get going on this. It's going to be fun. Yeah, so let's let's take it from the top here because I think uh, I read your bio. I was asking guys questions. Like I feel like there's a lot to get to, but for the listeners who maybe not uh, recognize your name just yet, how did you get into volleyball? Like, did you grow up in that BC area? What other sports were you playing? Like, what what were you doing before volleyball became your passion? Totally. So I played a lot of sports as a younger child. I started off with soccer, um, started playing soccer. I played some baseball as well. Then I really got into basketball. Um, my uncle is a basketball coach in Langley. So I was really into that sport. I loved it for a long time. Um, and then randomly, I got hooked on volleyball in about grade eight is when I started playing volleyball. And I just loved it. So I started playing club right then and there as well. Started playing for FBBC, where we won a national championship in U16 with Ben Joe as the coach, won three provincial championships in high school, and I just got hooked right then and there, so I wanted to keep playing it as long as I could. That's awesome, and yeah, and just a quick Ben Joe story, he actually reached out to me because we just had Dave Dooley on the show, and he mentioned that uh, Dave was on Ben Joe's first like provincial zonal team, and I think when he was in 14U, so we just got messaging, and then he said, yeah, like the BC community is super connected where you played club on Ben Joe's 16U team, and I think Ian Perry was on that team too, right? So what was the, like the Fraser Valley scene and just the BC scene in general, like uh, your kind of generation coming through? Totally, man. Our U16 team, at the time, we didn't know it, but we had a lot of good players on the squad. We had Ian was the setter, Brad Kufsky was on the team, Alex Davis was on the team, Stephen Richter, David Klomps, Zinning Chong, myself. Um, our entire starting lineup went to play U sports. Um, maybe one or two went and played some college. So we had a pretty good team. Um, we were fortunate that we got to practice against the older teams, which included like the JVDs and the Pantingas. Um, so we got to play against some good players as well, which I think was huge for our team. Yeah. And what can you tell me about Benjo in that era? Cause I think uh, we've pumped his tires and rightfully so a lot on this, on the show over the years, but, uh, as a youth coach, how did you feel as an athlete coming through the system? Cause correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe during that era, he wasn't like Benjo that he is like, he's earned that reputation now, but back in, in our era, when you're coming through as a club player, like, what did you think of his style and his approach? Totally. We loved it. Um, he was definitely younger. He had just started coaching. I don't know if he was head coaching yet at Trinity. I believe maybe he had just started. 
but it was a great learning experience. He's full of knowledge right then and there. We had Joel Jansen. He would come and help out as well, which is the journey assistant coach right now. Um, so we were super fortunate with the staff that we had. Just like he is now, he's super knowledgeable. He knew how to teach us what we needed to do. That was the first time where, I don't know, I feel like as a younger athlete, we're all kind of taught the same things, but I felt like at U16 with FBDC um, in the club experience was the first time that I was learning newer things. Um, and I think that was part of my growth and my enjoyment of the sport was it was something unique. It was something different that we hadn't done before. And I think that got me hooked on realizing that there's different ways to do things in the sport of volleyball. There's not just one way of performing a skill. Nice, nice. And you mentioned that you got to play with older athletes. And that reminds me, uh, when Center of Excellence was first started, uh, we all met in, in Richmond and Benjo gave a presentation. But uh, before we went, there was an article floating around about Fraser Valley and just how many kids from that club go on to play post-secondary. But in the article, it talked about like Super Saturdays. And that was something that I think Benjo and the club is really passionate about. So just tell me as a young athlete, how powerful that experience is about playing with older kids. Because I imagine like the first day you do it, maybe the 16 news are like a little shy or intimidated by the 18 news. But uh, I, I think it does help in the long run to see like the next level of volleyball right at such a young age totally we were even fortunate at the time to play against some of the current guys on the spartan team. so they would come in they would help us coach as well but then we would scrimmage against them a it was a huge learning experience for us because we played against people that were way better than we were um, <laughs> but b they also took the time to teach us and i think that's super important i think as a younger player someone who's just getting into the game when you see somebody that's older than you, see someone that is playing at kind of the level you want to get to, and they're there to help you along the way and show you the path and be with you throughout all the experiences, I think that's super important. And it's something that, as coaches, we can never give that point of view at that time as an athlete. So I think that was super important for us. It was also awesome for us to play against the older kids because, A, secretly we thought we could beat them, um, <laughs> but we never ended up winning. But it's just good for us to be pushed all the time. I think if you're in your comfort zone, if you are practicing against your own guys and you're just used to something, if we can push that uncomfortable feeling in practice, it's going to help us huge when it comes to playing in the game. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And just to, to clarify my earlier point, if there's any club directors or club coaches listening, like what was the format? How often was this happening? Was it kind of in the downtime of university sports or, or when, what time of year and how often would this happen for you guys? To be honest, I don't really remember, um, but I do know that it was more often than not. It didn't feel like it was a special occasion when we did play against somebody else. Um, we were fortunate that we could practice really close to the same time as the older teams, whether it be on one court and the next. So we would try and play each other as much as we could. But it wasn't like we do this once or twice a year and that was it. We did it quite a bit of times. Nice, nice. So with you having success at the high school and the club level, like you said, at what point did you start looking at post-secondary? And it's interesting because I think Ontario doesn't do it, but there's other pockets around the country that there are some maybe official or, or minor affiliation with a university or, or a CCAA program. So did you ever feel any pressure expectations that you needed to look at Trinity? Or when you started looking at post-secondary, did you feel like you were a free agent and you could approach anybody? <laughs> Good question. That was honestly... Um... Both of the situations were in the back of my mind. I wasn't very familiar with the recruiting process. I think recruiting has changed a lot from when I was playing. But I was more, I, I didn't sign to Thompson Rivers until January of my grade 12 year. 
Wow. Um, and I wouldn't say that it was a very long process. So I'm not familiar with the longer process of the grade 11 players getting recruited. Um, I'm not familiar with that from my own personal experience. So in the back of my mind, it was always that like we can stay at home. That's, in, that's not a problem at all. But then at the back of my mind, it was always that I want to have the experience of living away from home. So I kept those, like both of those situations pretty upfront in my mind. And then I was fortunate that uh, I was contacted by Pat at Thompson Rivers. Um, and I think we chatted for about a month or two before I committed in January. So it wasn't a long process at all. Now, it might be revisionist history at this point, but uh, was there any other school that you're considering that a coach listening is going to be like, man, we almost had him? <laughs> um, not really. To be honest, I didn't know much about the Canada West or the U sports at all. Um, I wasn't like, I wasn't going to a ton of games. I wasn't familiar with the process. There wasn't live streams that there are now. So it wasn't something that I was constantly thinking about. My world was pretty small at that time. It was just limited to um, the province of BC. So it's not something that I had, like I'm going to go across the country. That thought never entered my mind. So I was actually more shocked than someone outside of the Fraser Valley contacted me. That was something that was born to my thought. Nice, nice. And did, did uh, Coach Pat ever confirm how he saw you? Like, was he looking at the high school scene or the club scene? Or maybe, like, did you guys travel out of province a lot? I'm just curious how Thompson Rivers kind of got you on their radar. Because, uh, like you said, recruiting's changed a lot over the years. But I, I wonder how much he was looking in her province versus, like, across the country sometimes. Yeah, in my grade 12 year, we went to Kamloops for a tournament. They hosted one with the TRU team. Um, so I think that was kind of the first opening for Pat to see me. And then we ended up going to the Spruce Grove tournament um, with a Norwegian team that had come along as well. And I think Pat was there. So I, I think my grade 12 year um, for high school was kind of the first opening for other schools outside of the Fraser Valley to, to see me. Um, I don't think it was a long process. I don't think it was something that was like in the back of their minds for a year. I think I was fortunate that my team... Um, we traveled to Kamloops, we traveled to Kelowna, we traveled to Spruce Grove, and I think that opened up a lot of the pathways for me. Nice. And you mentioned like you weren't a super fan and you weren't going to games, but you were like crushing it at your level. You were playing against older athletes like on occasion. What was your, kind of your first impression of Can West? Like not only like the, the competition schedule, but even training camp with your own squad. Like, did you feel like there was a jump or did you feel like you belonged as soon as you stepped in the gym? Man, it was an eye-opening experience. I'll tell you that for sure. The first day of practice, we walked in and there's Ford, there's Baba, who's a guy from Turkey, who is an awesome volleyball player. He played on the Turkish national team as a child. Um, Robin Chobel was from France. We ended up getting um, Kevin Tilly from France as well. So I walked into a gym with a lot of veteran guys at the time. I didn't realize necessarily how good they were, but now there's two future Olympians on that team. So it was an eye-opening experience. I was super young, had been used to playing up all the time, but I feel like once you get to your first year of university, it's just a different game. And it's just, it's more physical. The players are a lot more strong and big, and it's just more professional than at the club level. Even though we did take a very professional route with how we played against the older guys, it was still an eye-opening experience. Just like the level that they play at every single day it took me a while to get used to that, that's for sure. Now, we, we won't treat this like an official statement, but I'm curious, in your opinion, 
Kamloops is beautiful. Thompson Rivers is a good school. But what is the international appeal? Is it purely like a men's volleyball thing? Or would you say it's fair to say like the whole school kind of attracts these international athletes like you just mentioned? Yeah, I think both. Um, I think Kamloops is like the hidden gem in BC. And you, you tend to drive through it a lot when you're traveling to Alberta um, or going for games, but you never take the time to stop there. Or when you do stop there, it's incredible. The people are awesome. The facility is incredible. The schooling is fantastic. Fantastic. And I think it's one of those situations that they took the initial leap in trying to create, I believe it's called the TRU world right now, where we have a lot of international students coming to the school. And they took the initial step and the initial leap, but not many other schools were doing it. So I think that opened the doors big time to that school being able to recruit these incredible volleyball players. Nice, nice. And you mentioned it was going to be a big jump. So when regular season started, and I'm sure the listeners are rolling their eyes at this point, but as an Ontario guy, I, I really enjoy the Canada West structure. So going from that high school and club level, how did you feel about the prep that goes into playing like those double headers and the adjustments that need to happen like the morning of like game two? I was something that we didn't really experience in club or in high school because you play four teams a day and there's not really that ability to watch film and be prepared for it. Um, but it was a learning experience for me too. Uh, it's one thing to play a team one night, but then it's one thing to prepare for what they did against you uh, for the next day. So I think that was a huge learning curve for me. I was fortunate that we were, I think there was like five or six of us that came in as first years at the same time. But then we, we were fortunate to play with a lot of older guys that had been around for a while. So they took us up under our wings. They let us know that, hey, this is how we go about it. But I do think that the ability to play one team on Friday and play that same team again on Saturday and trying to correct those mistakes, trying to look at game film and how we can adapt to how they play against us. I think that's super important moving forward in playoffs when maybe you come to nationals and you only play a team once and you watch video against them and then you're prepared, you're on the fly able to make these adaptations. I think that's super important. And I think it, it puts us in a good situation where we can see one thing, but then be able to correct ourselves for the next day. Nice. And then just progressing through your career, let's put it out there on the table. I feel like I have a really good source on this. And for the listeners, serve, receive, you, Gord, and Tilly. So you're serve, receiving beside two Olympians. Like, what was that like? Like, where you feel like every game, like you were going to be targeted or because they're like going to be an outside hitter, did they get targeted a little bit? Like, how was the mood playing against like two studs and knowing that like you were going to have to be the steady one because they were obviously responsible for putting up points and all that other good stuff, right? 100% 100% they targeted me. <laughs> I have. I will gladly share that with the world. Yeah, I think it was good for me because obviously at the time I didn't know they were going to be Olympians. Um, and this is one of the stories I was going to share, but that's okay. Um, but it also took a lot of pressure off of me because to be honest, so we would have Bay Luol or, or Baba. He was a left side for TRU for a long time from Turkey. And he's a very skilled volleyball player. One of the best receivers I've ever seen and I ever played with. But when you have guys like Ford and Tilly who are so skilled in reception and just are so skilled as outside hitters, we had to move Baba into the middle position. But with that said, when he would come into the back row, normally you would sub out and transition for the libero and the middle. He would stay in the back row. So whenever I played, I only played half of a set in the back row for the other middle that was on the team because he would just take control and we would play with the middle in the back row because he was a very good receiver. So the half of the game that I did get to play, um, I would get pinched out a little bit board until he would take two thirds of the court and I would have sliver on the sideline and teams would definitely try and go at me. 
But with that said, that also took away a little bit of the pressure. And I think that helped me out a lot, having the confidence knowing that I had two really good receivers, two receivers that were going to take a lot of space away from me so that if the ball did come in my direction, the area of court that I needed to pass from, it, it wasn't very big. My responsibility, it wasn't very big. Um, a lot was put on their shoulders and they did so in a very, very good way. But it was kind of funny watching the game and seeing there's Libero getting pinched out in one for the two left sides because they are the dominant receivers. Or there's Libero sitting on the bench because the middle is playing on the court because he is so skilled because his natural position is a left side. Nice, nice. I, I love it. And one guy we both know really well, uh, Christian Redmond, when I first went to Toronto, I, I used to buddy around with him quite a bit. And I, I remember asking him what it was like being targeted because during his beach career, I think he was targeted mostly with whatever partnership he was with. But he, he always had the mindset that he enjoyed it and he liked having the control in the game. And I think in the beach, that's a really important attitude to have. And uh, I would actually encourage liberos to have that as well. But I'm wondering like what your self-talk was because you, you mentioned you're being pinched out and you got a, a lot of good support. But I think the added challenge of a libero being targeted is you don't have an outlet to earn points you can't go get a kill you can't go get a block like you're almost like a goalie right that if you let one in it's an error and you let your team down but you don't have that like outlet to earn points so what was your mindset or your self-talk or your process through training to be ready for game day because i think it is kind of a unique position that you don't really have like i said a chance to build yourself up other than like keep passing and keep digging right i took my position maybe a little bit differently than most in my first year as i went through with Thompson Rivers, um, the position that definitely changed, taking a little bit more work. But in that first year, I took it more as being as good of a teammate as I could. I was taking a smaller court. If someone's trying to hit a smaller spot on the court, maybe the serves aren't as heavy as they normally would be instead of letting their arm go. So I took pride in, A, keeping the ball off the floor, but also being a good teammate. They were older guys than me. They were a lot more professional. They moved on to other careers in the sport of volleyball. But I thought that one thing I could bring to the table was A, be responsible for the little bit of court that I have. And when I'm on the court or when I'm off the court, just be the best teammate I could possibly be. I think that's super important. I think we get caught up sometimes in the X's and O's of volleyball. But if we can be good teammates on the court, if we're not playing the best that we can, if we're struggling to get a pass up, but we are a good teammate, at least we're bringing something to the table. Um, so that was something that I really tried passionately to bring to our team in that first year because there were so many guys that were better than me they were more skilled than me they took up more court than me they went on to better careers than me but i really thought that i could be the best teammate on the court and that's something that i tried to do awesome awesome and then just to go back to one of your earlier points i know uh, we're looking back and with hindsight and you're saying like at the time really didn't know Gord was going to turn into Gord, right? But now that you look back and you kind of know the outcome, was there anything that really set him and Tilly and some of the other special players you, that you saw, like even just work ethic or the way they approached or what they were doing 20 minutes before practice? Like, was there anything that stood out or honestly, they were just really good youth sports players and, and they've worked themselves up to reach the level that they have now? Honestly, I would probably say the competitiveness and everything that they did. So we started most practices playing 2v2 until he was the best 2v2 player I've ever seen. But he also wanted to stay on the top side as much as possible. Like he didn't care if he never left and he wasn't getting a break. He wanted to let you know that he was the best player because he was so competitive in 2v2 and in volleyball. And Gord was the same way. No matter what the drill was, they never took a rep off. It wasn't like, let's take a breather. I know I'm the best. I'm just going to coast through these motions and just make my career post Thompson Rivers, 
they were so professional and so competitive in everything that they did. And it definitely spurred that feeling onto the rest of us. Was That was one of the most competitive practice environments I've probably ever been a part of, just because those guys did not want to lose. They would do whatever it took in the Monday practice after we traveled back from Brandon to win the 2v2, to win the short court, and then to win the 6v6 scrimmage that we did. Like there was some of the most heated scrimmages I've ever been a part of just because they did not want to win. And it didn't care if they were playing against a bunch of six first years, they wanted to win every single thing that they did. And that really stuck with me. That no matter what you're doing, be competitive, want to be the best that you can and try and do the best that you can in everything that you do. That, that's awesome. And then I, I, sorry, I don't really know the timeline correctly, but I do know that Tilly eventually transferred to UCI, right? So when he left, were were you or another athlete able to kind of replace that competitiveness or was he just so unique that everybody respected it and loved it, but it, it's really hard to artificially create that if he just didn't have his energy? Totally. So Gord left after my first year. He went and played pro right away after my first year. Then Kevin stayed for two years before he went to UCI. So um, in my second year, I wasn't a part of the team, which is one of my other stories. So I'll save that one for later. <laughs> but um, our team definitely took a little bit of a dip after both of them left. And I think being a bunch of first years, we relied on them. We learned from them, but we didn't learn right away how to incorporate that competitiveness into everything that we did. And we just relied on them. So then as soon as they left, our team definitely took a little bit of a hit. We started being, I think we were like third last. Uh, fourth last in the conference of Canada West for my second and third year. And then it was like, Hey, it's time for us to pick this up. It's time for us to learn from those guys that we've been around so much. And now it's our time to implement it. And I think in my fourth and fifth year, that was when we had the best seasons that we've had at TRU from my point of view, like when I was an athlete, because we had that experience of this is what it takes to be the best. We just needed to learn how to implement it. And I think that took two or three years for us to get there. Awesome. Awesome. So hearing your journey as an athlete and just who you're around and everything you're soaking in and everything you value, it, it does seem like the pieces add up that coaching was going to be the, the best step for you. So uh, I'm curious, were you considering coaching when you were still playing and, or did like just the opportunity to stick around TRU and be a part of the staff? Is that what really got you going in your coaching career? I was very fortunate that um, with TRU, Pat was very big on camps. Uh, um, that was super important to him. Being in Kamloops, you're not necessarily by the most population of people. Um, so we took advantage of being kind of what the Fraser Valley would call north. Um, and we made sure that we did a lot of camps for the northern people. So we would go in Kamloops, we'd go to Prince George, we'd go to Terrace, uh, we'd run these camps. Um, and that was probably the first experience for me with coaching and I fell in love with it. So I was fortunate enough to go to Prince George. That's kind of the TRU's, their biggest camp. Um, so I was coaching at that camp, loved it. Then I went to Terrace and I did a camp with, with Jason Haldane. Um, and that camp was incredible. And I learned a lot from him in my first one on kind of the ins and outs of volleyball, how to be professional, how to explain your teachings to the athletes. Uh, and those camps were kind of what started the fire for me on wanting to be a coach. So I don't know necessarily if I, in the back of my mind as an athlete, I was like, hey, when I'm done, I'm going to be a coach. But those experiences that I was happily able to do, they gave me a, a, a lot of joy and they wanted me to keep pursuing kind of the art of coaching. So without those camps, I don't know if I would be a coach. 
Um, but I ended up doing those camps from my second year to my fifth year. I ended up being fortunate to be the head coach of the terrace camp. So I would run the camp for about 90 athletes up in terrace. And it was an awesome experience. I loved it. And that's what the, the and that's where the love of coaching began from. Nice, nice. And I'm always curious when, when a former athlete steps into an assistant coaching role at the post-secondary level, like how did you manage those relationships or was Coach Pat kind of encouraging you to be like the buffer between the head coach and the squad sometimes that you were the one who was going to make sure that they were in bed on time and following curfew and doing that stuff? Like were you encouraged to be connected or were you trying to almost put a wall up and stop being so buddy-buddy with guys that you had been in the trenches with, right? Totally. I think a little bit of both. Um I think being an athlete for your fourth and fifth year, you get to know the younger guys. And I think that is an advantage for assistant coaches. And I think you can relate to those players and you know how they work. So it's definitely like, hey, become friends with them and coach them how you know they want to be coached and speak to them how they like to be spoken to. Um, so that was definitely one side of it. But then there was the learning curve that Pat didn't necessarily um, – hey, you need to be a coach and kind of step away from the athletes. It was more of a learning experience for me that if I do want to be a coach and if I do see a future in it, um, it's okay to be a buddy with the players, but there also comes a point in time where you need to be a coach and you need to draw the line and you need to let them know that maybe what they're doing isn't correct. Um, and that's tough if you're just a friend. So I think there's a fine line between the two of them it's tough to sometimes be on one side or the other, but I think it is important to build the relationships and know how the athletes work. But then again, know that you are a professional, that this is your job and you do need to handle it in a certain way. Um, I think that's super important. That's something I learned at TRU for sure. Nice. Nice. And when you're first starting, like, did you feel just more natural working with the serve receive and the libs or, or how did you get your confidence up with the other positions? Cause I think, there's a lot of coaches out there that obviously we have to cover everything, especially if you're going to be in that first chair, but there is like a natural approach that I think setters coach setters really hard. So I'm wondering, were you really in love with like the serve and pass game or what really appealed to you to really feel like you were involved in influencing the team in the right way? In my first year, I wanted to be comfortable for sure. So I gravitated more towards the service side of the sport. Um, and I probably did that for two or three years just because I wanted to make sure that I was doing things correctly. I wanted to make sure that um, I knew what I was talking about. But I think Pat also did a really good job of pushing me out of my comfort zone with like, hey, we know that you know what you're talking about with service team. But if you want to be a good coach, you're going to need to go out of your comfort zone. So for an example, setting is not my comfort zone. I wouldn't say that I had the best hands as a libero, <laughs> as a setter. I don't know if I know the best ways to teach a setter the most effectively. But I think Pat put me in a situation where at times I felt uncomfortable. And I think that's where the growth takes place the most. I got the opportunity to head coach for a bunch of preseason games at TRU. And I also got to head coach in a league game against Larry McKay in Winnipeg. And as a first year or a second year assistant coach, that was a very uncomfortable situation for me. But I think those uncomfortable situations, calling the timeouts when I think it's appropriate, giving the correct feedback, giving the correct information in order to get out of a rotation. That's something that I wasn't used to as a libero. That was more of like the setter's job. But I think Pat took the risk and I will forever be grateful for him for that in giving me those opportunities. I don't know with 
out those opportunities if I would be where I was. And that takes a lot for a head coach to do. That's not easy for a head coach to give up the reins in a league game against Larry McKay in Winnipeg. Like that's not a simple thing to do. But he understood that if I was super passionate about assistant coaching and head coaching, I wanted to be a coach that I needed those opportunities to learn from the difficult situations. And do you do you remember your mindset during that match? Because I think as a competitor and a young guy, my mind would wander that like, oh, I have to outcoach Larry this game where you get a little bit older, a little bit more experienced. You're kind of like, I just got to coach my team. And if my team's better than Larry's team, like I got a chance. It's not me versus him. But uh, I think what makes it extra unique about Larry is he's probably not giving you anything. He's not going to give you conflict through the net. He's probably going to sit in his chair and coach his squad, right? So your mind's maybe wandering and he's not giving you much in terms of like body language or talking, right? So in that experience, are you building it up in your mind that you you're coaching against like the great Larry McKay or were you trying to treat it like uh, I just got to take care of my guys right now <laughs> I tried my best not to but of course those thoughts come into your mind a little bit I was so nervous for that game I didn't want to let the team down I didn't want to say something wrong I was not in the comfort of my own gym um, there was a lot of distractions going on at that time we were in a tough spot that year um, so I definitely tried to not think about those things but they definitely crept in, they crept into my mind but I think that almost the obliviousness that I approached with that game, like in hindsight right now, looking back at it, like that was an incredible experience. But I don't know if that, if at that time I was very aware of the opportunity that was in front of me. Um, so I almost went into it a little bit blindly, but I definitely look back at that and just be like, you can do it. Like, if I'm ever thrown in that situation, that is one of those experiences that I know that I can now conquer, and I'm confident in it. But those thoughts definitely creep into your mind. Like, I'm the first one to admit that I felt a little bit out of my element. I wasn't exactly confident in myself. But I do think you need to take those risks at time in order for you to be confident in yourself later on. Nice, nice. And then just to wrap up uh, TRU, because there's a lot to cover here on your resume, but I, I didn't want to talk about this. Just the unique experience of Pat taking a year off and then Mike Hawkins steps in. So now you're in a support role to somebody that you, you've known for a while, right? So how was that year in your mind? Like, did you feel like you took on more of a leadership role to kind of help support him? Or did he have a different way and kind of had an idea for like how he wanted the staff to behave when he was the head chair? Like, what was that year like when Pat's not there and it's kind of like a new mood around the team? Totally. I think that it was pretty similar to my first year where I coached one year with Pat and then I coached one year with Hawk. So in my first year, maybe it was the inverse. It was the inverse. So, but in my first, in with Hawk, when we were coaching, it was kind of trying to experience things for the first time. We didn't necessarily have that fifth year player on the court with us in Pat to guide us the way. Sure, he helped uh, post-practice or post-game, but he had a bunch of family things on the go. So he wasn't there all the time. So we kind of had to figure out these things on the fly on what makes a successful coach. And we had Pat in the background helping us along the way. But when you're thrown into the fire, um, you definitely learn things pretty quickly. So from my experience playing with Pat, it was in one direction. And then when Hawk comes in, each coach is different. So it was definitely a learning experience of how we're going to do this. But it was also a learning experience for me because that was my first year being an assistant coach. So I didn't really understand the nuances of what it took. I didn't understand 
what I needed to do on the daily. I didn't understand how to fully interact with the athletes. I didn't understand practice planning. I like anything you can imagine. I wasn't, I didn't have much experience with, with that. So I think that first year of Hawk and I kind of being thrown in, into the fire, it was huge for us. I bet we could have done a better job 100%, but we learned so much in that year that I will take with me for the rest of my coaching career because I got that opportunity. And that was one of those things that Pat, again, I don't know, he didn't mean to provide that opportunity, but we got that opportunity because he decided to take a year off. Without that year off, once again, I don't know if I'd be that same coach. Then when Pat comes back the following year, I've grown so much as an individual assistant coach that when somebody who has more experience, who's been around the game for so long, um, I definitely felt more like I belonged in the position. When I think if it went the other way around, when if Pat was first and then we went with Hawk, um, I just think that I wouldn't have learned as much. So I think that year off is super important. Nice. Yeah. And thank you for your help with the timeline there. I got my years mixed up. I thought one happened before the other, but no, that's cool to hear about your journey. Yeah, to be honest, I might be wrong too. <laughs> I keep flip-flopping them all the time, so I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> nice. Nice. And I'm wondering what kind of sparked your passion for, for motor learning and skill acquisition, all that good stuff. Because is it fair to say when you join the UBC coaching staff, like obviously you're there and you're, you're an expert and you're there to provide the program, but I believe you were also a student at UBC that year pursuing more education and kind of focusing on motor learning. Is that right? Yeah. So funny story too. Um, I had completed my bachelor's of arts at TRU and I really wanted to pursue a master's in sports psychology. So um, I was really passionate about that. So I was originally intending to go to the University of Calgary to work with one of their professors, Dave Paskovich. He's a super incredible sports psychologist. He worked with a bunch of the Team Canada teams that go to the Olympics. Um, so I really wanted to pursue the master's in sports psychology. But as I got closer and closer to graduating from TRU, some family things, just wanting to be closer to home, I felt more moved to move back to the West Coast, to move back to Vancouver or to Langley or to Abbotsford. Um, so Ian Perry, who I played with at U16, U17, 18 Fraser Valley and provincial teams, he was he had finished his career at UBC and he was an assistant coach at UBC at the time, one year with Kerry McDonald. So I had talked to him about becoming or doing my master's in sports psych. And he was kind of working towards the same thing. And he brought the idea of coming to UBC. That was something that was never on my mind. That was something I had never really thought about. Um, but I was like, hey, like, I would love to move back towards home. I think it'd be awesome opportunity for me. So when I applied to get into the master's of, it was master's of kinesiology, but you specialize in sports psychology, they were completely filled. So I couldn't get in. So I spoke with Carrie. Carrie's like, yeah, you can't get into this, but you could find a supervisor that actually specializes in motor learning. And I think this is a super important topic that not many people are educating themselves or not many people are diving into. So I completely, I never had met Carrie before in person, maybe one time post the UBC Thompson Rivers match that we had met. Um, and I fully trusted him to just take a leap and go in towards motor learning. So uh, I um, applied for the master's in motor learning. I got in with a supervisor named Dr. Nikki Hodges. She's incredible. Um, and I just completely took that leap into 
jumping into kind of the science of motor learning. Um, I'm so glad that that happened. It uh, definitely was not kind of the direction that I had anticipated I was going to go, but that risk that I took in going into a field that was pretty novel, that was pretty new, um, I'm so glad that I did it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, me being with Volleyball Canada, it's I, I get to work with Carrie a lot, and it feels like every time we have like a meeting or a call, we'll, we'll cover business, and then I'll always just pick his brain for like five or ten questions afterwards. So I'm curious with your background and your knowledge, like what's a bus trip or what's a conversation in the coach's office like? Where you guys just like turning that UBC gym into like a laboratory? Because it seems like he gets a lot of credit and rightfully so about like his serving study and everything else he's looked at. Like how much were you guys? kind of dissecting maybe a traditional method of how volleyball is coached versus like this new age thing where you're using data driven and motor learning and skill acquisition. Like what, what were those conversations and what was that experience like? Totally. The amount of nerd talks that we had was incredible. <laughs> um, I was very fortunate that even in my first year where I was very new to the motor learning research, um, Sherry was super into it. The coaching staff was super into it. The coaching staff was Matt Labordier and Ian Perry. So we were fortunate that Ian was doing sports side. Perry had kind of gone on with his sports science stuff. Um, and I had the motor learning side of things. So our practice planning meetings, they were awesome. We would always have a topic, but it was always like, okay, here's what we want to work on, but how can we incorporate all these different fields into making it the most effective drill or the most effective practice that we can have? There was a lot of risk taking. There was a lot of trial and error of what we needed to work on. But I was very fortunate that the coaching staff that um, I was a part of, they were open to a lot of things. And they trusted a lot of this research that I was coming to from my random class that I had just learned that I thought was incredible. Um, they wanted to implement it. And I think that, once again, I got, I got placed into an opportunity that those people were open to trying new things. They were open to trying new experiences. They were open to doing something a little bit different than the norm. Um, and I think that's what was super important for us that year. So I will forever be grateful and um, happy that we had that. Because I, once again, without that opportunity, I don't think that um, I would be as confident in the motor learning strategies. I wouldn't be as open to trying something new if I didn't have that chance. Awesome, man. I, I, I'm fired up. So don't share anything that you're going to regret later, but this is definitely going on the internet. But uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, motor learning skill acquisition, I, I go down the rabbit hole all the time. Like I, I'm big into Jose Marino and tactical periodization right now. I'm breathing as much as I can on that. But uh, one thing that I find struggling as a coach is I think there's a ton of theory out there and I'll listen to coach your brains out or I'll, I'll go out for dinner or we'll pre COVID and talk to coaches and, Certain people have certain ways of doing things, but sometimes when I try it in my gym, I don't get the same appeal or I don't get as fired up about it. So I'm curious with you having the freedom to like try stuff, was there ever anything you came across early where you're kind of like, wow, the 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 study I read on this or this isolated thing that happened, like I, I see how it worked for that coach, but it's not going to work for me because I think in the club world right now, I think the biggest thing happening with Canadian coaching is we're, we're swaying off block training and we're into random training and when the game needs to look like the game. And, and I think that stuff makes sense. But I'm curious when you started, was there anything you tried and you're like so fired up and you're just like, man, it's just not going to work for me? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um yeah, there were definitely some hit or miss things. Like I 
when it comes to like subconscious learning or trying to learn about being aware, I think there's definitely different ways that you can go about it. And some tactics did not work. Like for example, when our receivers would be receiving a ball, I would be asking them a question after serve contact, flavor of ice cream, number, letter, color. And they would have to answer that question while they were performing the action of learning because you were hoping that subconsciously they know the movement of reception so they can answer that question and therefore still perform the movement of reception. Um, so things like that, they didn't necessarily, on paper, they sounded phenomenal, but necessarily it didn't work on practice floor. Um, but there were a lot of things that did work. Um, I think that when we are in an environment that is completely open to different things, changing new things, I think, A, you might bring something to the table that isn't necessarily the most effective, but when you have other individuals that are like-minded, that bring a lot of experience, that are open to these things, I think you can find kind of the middle ground, the ground that works. Um, to be honest, I there was a, many times where we would have a discussion on like, hey, we're missing a lot of certs, so why are we doing this? Like we had that discussion a lot. But there was always a reason why, or there was always the next strategy that we could do to try and decrease those amount of certs. We were always on the same page. We were always thinking ahead. We were always positive about it. And I think that mindset of A, completely respecting each other and one another in your practice planning and agreeing and understanding and trusting what's going on, I think that's huge when you're bringing something new to the table. Because sometimes those new things don't work but if you try it once and it doesn't work, like that's okay. Now you're learning something that doesn't work, but therefore you're learning something that does work. And I think we focus too much on what didn't work, but the topic that we're bringing to the table with regards to motor learning, it does work. But maybe the example that we tried to implement, it wasn't efficient with the athlete. So how can we make that topic be more efficient to the athlete? And I think that's what we worked a lot on in my first year. Yeah, well said. And hopefully you can let us in behind the curtain here because you guys won a national championship and that's awesome. But uh, not to be the, the pessimist, but that could have went the other way. You guys were living and dying by the sword. And I think you finished third in Canada West that year. Like it was when you guys were on, you were crushing laser beams and you guys were going to be all world. But there, like you said, there was times when you were missing serves. So what were the conversations like? Because I think as an old school volleyball coach, it's so tempting to go into a timeout and be like, oh, we're missing so many serves. But that wasn't your game plan. That wasn't your identity, right? So was there ever a moment in time where you guys are like, we need to abandon ship here. This is not going to work. Like, it sounds awesome. And we want to be alphas and confident and go for it from the service line. But we're missing 12 serves a set right now. And it's not going to work for us. Like, what was there ever a moment of doubt? Or were you guys so locked in that you're like, it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. There was definitely a moment of doubt on my point of view. Uh, I'm the first person to admit it, and I bet the coaching staff would also admit that I was questioning uh, um, our serving tactics, but there wasn't really a point of doubt from the head coach. Um, I think that was super important, and it was more of this is our style, this is how we're going to play, and maybe how we are providing those opportunities to learn in practice aren't the most efficient, so how can we change that? 
So we would go through and we would create different ways that we think is the most efficient way or what we could provide to the athletes that would increase their ability to serve in the game. And we would try and do that as much as we can. So one thing that I think is super important, something that a bunch of coaches, um, I think need to incorporate a little bit more into their practicing is this external focus of attention. It's like, if we wanna hit the ball hard, if we wanna hit the ball to a certain seam, if we wanna hit the ball with a certain trajectory, we need to think about that while we are performing the action. If we're thinking about our toss, if we're thinking about the elbow high and snapping our wrist, that the chances of the ball going where we want it to go, it actually decreased. So we were really big on this external focus of attention. You need to visualize where the ball is going. You need to visualize the amount of spin or the amount of float that the ball has. You need to imagine the trajectory that the ball is going. And I think in every skill in volleyball, that's super important. And we can do that in every skill, but we tend to focus a little bit more on the internal cues and that tends to hurt our performance. That's where the choking comes into play. When we look at baseball and there's individuals who as a pitcher, they get the yips or they start to choke because they can't hit the strike zone and they can't hit the pitch that they're doing more often than not, their focus of attention is directly related to their body mechanics or an internal focus of attention. I need my elbow to do this. I need my follow through to do this. But I almost guarantee that when they're having the best pitching games of their lives or they're in the zone or they're feeling this flow, they're thinking more of what that ball is doing. How much is the curve ball spinning? Where is the target? They're thinking about those external factors. Um, so that was something that was super important to us that, hey, we're missing some serves. We're missing 12 to 15 to set at times. But if we keep that external focus, if we stay dialed in what we want that ball to do, ultimately in the long run, it's going to pay off for us. Now it might be chicken or egg at this point, but I'm curious, do you remember, was this something that Kerry just super valued about his understanding and his tactical approach to volleyball that a Kerry McDonald coach team is going to just serve bombs from the baseline or was this something based on the personnel you guys had? Like, it, you know what I mean? Like sometimes coaches, I, I think we get excited and we want to do something because that's what we believe in, but you don't have the horses. Obviously this one came together as a perfect storm and it worked, but uh, I'm curious what sparked what? Was it Carrie's just uh, his passion for volleyball and, and serving so important? Or was it because you had the horses and it was a good tactic to use? I definitely think both. Um, I think both can come into play and I feel like that's going to be my answers for a lot of your questions. <laughs> so I apologize. Um, but I do think that both come into play. Um, I think a, you can have good servers. And so you're going to ride that skill a lot, but I do think if a skill is super important to you, that if you provide an environment that allows the athletes to efficiently improve and perform with that skill, um, you're going to be okay. So I do think that um, we did have the servers pull off kind of that mindset, but I do also think that we pushed that mindset a lot in practice and put them in the opportunities and in the drills and gave them the mindset to be able to achieve that topic of serving that we were pretty passionate about. Nice. And everything I've read and even like, 
using this podcast for my own personal gain and getting guys like Tom Black on the show and asking about transfer. I'm curious, where do you stand on the issue? Because I remember reading something and I spoke to uh, Leonard Kropp, who's a, a beach coach here in Toronto. I used to coach the national team, used to be with the German program. And I remember reading something that said that skill acquisition can take like over eight weeks for a youth athlete. And I was like, really? Eight weeks? And he just laughed and said, oh, at least. So going back to your earlier comment about like, sometimes we focus on what's not working versus what is working. Have you found or encouraged maybe some youth coaches or even what you do in your own coaching like how big is a training block and how much time are you willing to be patient with a skill that maybe something is going to take 12 weeks for for a younger volleyball player to pick up and you're okay with that totally i couldn't agree more um i think if we focus on the motor learning research it's going to take more time so if we're trying to push implicit learning we're trying to allow the athlete to learn something on their own or without their awareness of learning something without the instructions of how to do something that's going to take more time than it would be if we explicitly told an athlete exactly what to do. But if I tell an athlete exactly what to do, I firmly don't believe that they are actually learning that skill. They're just copying what you have told them to do. But copying something is really quick compared to learning something. And it's the same thing when it comes to block versus random. When we do a blocked drill when we're setting to position four over and over and over again we can calibrate exactly what we need to do but once we set that ball in the target and we have that calibration i can just copy that movement over and over and over again so that doesn't take much time to be able to calibrate what we need to do but if we make it random and we set a ball and we dig a ball and we serve a ball and then we come back in to set a ball now i don't have that calibration anymore so now I need to remember exactly what I had learned in order to make a successful step or even something as simple as setting to position four and then setting to position two and then setting a pipe and then going back to four. I can't just copy my calibration. I need to remember how to do something. And those rememberings and not being able to just calibrate something, that takes time. So I think as coaches, sometimes we get very focused on practice needs to look perfect and we need to be able to do something very well in practice because if we can do it well in practice, we can do it well in a game. But I don't necessarily believe that doing something well in practice means that you can do it well in a game. I think that we need to provide the opportunities for the athletes to struggle a little bit in practice to understand and teach themselves what is going on and that will transfer to a game. But that thought and that um, execution of learning, it takes way more time. So we need to be okay with the athlete making mistakes. We need to be okay with the athlete not performing the skill properly because if that is happening, we are putting them in the correct situation to learn. Yeah, this is this is awesome. So let's go there because this is one that I think I, I see abused as, as somebody who enjoys like being a learning facilitator and helping other coaches, but also like reflecting on my own. I love the concept and I'm, I'm all in on implicit learning, but where I see it being abused is I think some coaches think that's just playing a lot and they're just going to play for the sake of playing where they think, oh, if the athlete figures it out on their own, it's going to be more powerful. Sure. I totally agree with that. But some athletes are not. So maybe you do need to encourage, hey, on this float serve, we're aiming halfway up the sideline. We want to get the passer on the ground because if we get them on the ground, their hitting percentage is going to drop 200 points or whatever the data says in those situations, right? So where does the balance for you come in between like 
coaching and guiding the athlete for like the behavior you want to see versus implicit. Because like I said, some coaches think this is playing for the sake of playing and that stuff drives me bonkers. A couple points come to mind with that. I definitely think that there's a difference between um, like a learning mode and a performing mode. So when we are on court in a game and we're performing, our tactical feedback that we provide somebody is very explicit. So I'm not going to be an assistant coach on the sideline and an individual is serving and I'm going to be like, hey, what do you think you should do here? Like, sure, that's great. And that's going to help their learning. But in a performance mode, it's also okay to be like, we need to serve short two right now because it's going to take the individuals out of their rotation. It's going to cause a little bit of a confusion and it's going to help us out. So it's okay to do that in performance mode as an, as a coach. But I think when we get into the learning mode, when we're trying to learn a new skill, there's a difference between the two. So when we're learning a skill, I think it's super important to be implicit. We want the individuals to be able to know how to perform the movement of high ball setting on their own, rather than me in a game telling them, I need you to use your legs, finish the target. Like we don't want to do that in a game. We want to talk more about strategy. And that's the performing. So I think we need to find the distinction between the two. Are we teaching an individual a new skill and how to perform a short serve? Or are we talking tactics and we need to decide what is going to be the best performance that we can give or the best performance feedback that we can give that allows the best outcome for our athletes? I think there's a huge difference between the two. And I also think that there's different levels of implicit learning. So if I look at the challenge point hypothesis, something that's pretty popular right now, the amount of information you are given correlates to the amount of learning that takes place. So if I'm a 14 year old and I've never played the sport of volleyball before, my challenge point is going to be a little bit lower than when I'm an 18 U athlete. When I'm an 18U athlete, maybe if I'm working on the skill of setting, I need to be in more game-like repetitions because I need my challenge point to be higher in order to give me the amount of information I need in order to improve. But if I put a U14 athlete in that same situation, the amount of information is completely overloading their brain, so then they won't be able to learn a new skill. So maybe we need to dial back the amount of gameplay that we do put them in a little bit more um, comforting situations that gives them the appropriate amount of information they need in order to improve that skill. So I definitely think it's very age, skill, and level dependent. But I do think there's a difference between learning and performing and what age you are depending on how challenging you need that practice or that drill to be. Can you... Give me an example of what uh, what language or feedback you're using. So let's let's give you some restraints here. So beach, let's do beach because we haven't even touched on new wave. Let's do beach. So let's say 14 U athlete learning how to handset for the first time versus a 20 year old athlete who's a provincial team level or higher, and you're and you're still talking about handsetting. Like uh, I like your explanation there. So maybe we're not talking about forward lean or what foots forward or what their hands are doing. And like you're you're shifting to an external focus, but how are you introducing that both for like the, the development and the age of the athlete? 
they have never experienced the act of sending before, I do think we need to block rep that. And I think that we need to give them specific learning feedback on how to perform that skill. But once they have performed that skill um, and they know how to do it, I think we need to start to challenge them. So maybe that means we make them move on the court a little bit and still perform the action of setting. I'm very big on the idea of 60, 40, 70, 30, that you're failing 40 to 30% of the time. So if we can put them in a situation that allows them, I say allows in a positive way, that allows them to fail 30% of the time, I think we have gauged a, a, an appropriate amount of challenge for them. So maybe it's not from a, a serve and a pass and it's completely locked. That might be too tough for the developmental athlete. But how can we still use the specificity of volleyball to train a skill, but put them in a situation that they are failing 30% of the time? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do firmly believe that if we are allowing the athletes to fail 30, for 30 to 40% of the time, that will allow the learning process to take place. Maybe when we come to performance, maybe we don't want them to fail 30 or 40% of the time, and that's okay, but that's a totally different part of practice compared to trying to teach somebody how to perform the pat or the, the overhand set. Nice. Yeah. I like how you included that because I think when, when this hit in a big way that like random learning, like you were almost considered a bad coach if you did block training, but I totally agree with you. A new athlete needs to understand and feel and really like uh, in the volleyball Canada language, it's called a method one. And basically that's just like their relationship to the ball. And I think that's super important and gets overlooked a little bit that they can't, they can't do it at game speed until they understand what's being asked of them. Right. So I, I like how you go there and then go to your challenge point and then your, your feedback slowly turns into, external staff once they understand kind of what's required and they don't need to do it well they don't need to be able to do it 10 out of times so they just need to have an understanding of what's required right and then you kind of build from there so th this is all awesome stuff uh i am curious you keep mentioning learning and performing so let's say you're coaching like a high school or a club team are, are you not learning the whole season or how are you dividing those into chunks and like how do you feel as a as a coach you're communicating that to the athlete that like Hey squad, it, it's time to perform. We're not learning anymore. Like, how do you get that mood to change? Totally. Um, I'm very big on letting the athletes know if we are in learning or performing mode. So if we're at the beginning or preseason, we're going to spend a little bit more time in the learning mode. This is how our systems work. This is how the skill execution needs to take place. And as the season progresses, we're going to get more and more into performing mode. But what I try and really explicitly state to the athletes is if myself as a coach, if I am doing a good job of putting you in the correct learning modes throughout practice, when it comes to the performing time, what you've learned should transfer. So I don't think that um, if we put individuals in a learning mode that all of a sudden we get to gameplay and it's gone. That means as myself, as a coach, maybe I haven't challenged you enough. So if I am trying to work on the skill of overhand setting, and if I put you through certain drills in practice, and then we get to straight up gameplay, which is the performing mode, and it doesn't transfer, I don't think that I have put you in enough situations 
that challenge your learning or that challenge your skill execution enough that allows it to transfer. Um, so I take great pride in that. And A, it might not happen right away. So there's no way that if you teach the skill of overhand setting on day one, that day one of performing mode when you're playing, it's going to transfer. That's not going to happen. I can almost guarantee you that. But it's the patience of understanding. I believe I have put them in the situations that it's going to transfer. It will happen in the later end of the season. But I do think that as coaches, we get caught up way too much in the performance side of things that I need you to set the ball into the target as consistently as you possibly can, because that means that when you get on the court, you're, you're going to perform at a higher rate. But I don't believe that. That means that you're putting the individual in a comfortable situation. If they can set nine out of 10 balls in the target, <clears throat> when it comes to learning mode, I don't think we're forcing or pushing them enough. If they set six out of 10 or seven out of 10, we're in that comfort zone. They're learning. They're expanding their brain plasticity. They're learning how to perform a skill at a rate that is uncomfortable for them. So we need to be able to push the learning mode into the six and sevens out of 10 so that when we do get to performance mode, we're able to um, perform at a higher rate than we normally would be able to. And, and obviously it's, Easier said than done. And just don't give me your, your coaching clinic speech answer here, but I'm curious, where does your own goals and kind of personality and, and heck even ego come into this? So you're, you're coaching at new wave and you got some young athletes and Hey, Matt's our coach. He, he's a national team assistant. He coaches at the university level. He's an expert in motor learning, but your squad, let's just knock on wood. This probably isn't going to happen, but let's just say it does. You don't win 14 new provincials. And now all of a sudden you're a bad coach because you're coaching these kids and you did, you didn't get the outcome result. Like how do you approach that as a coach? Because I think it is such a long term thing, like you said, and, and then, and it's really athlete driven that maybe you're just coaching them to be the best they can be. And maybe you're not looking for that gold medal at the end. But uh, I think as coaches, we get distracted or maybe influenced by parents or certain people talking that, Hey, here, here's Matt and he's an expert, but proofs in the pudding, like his squad didn't get the results they're supposed to. Totally. I think that's where we need to, almost define our or change our definition of success is like, Hey, maybe we're not winning um, at, at the rate that we think we're winning, but are we improving? Are we getting better at a certain skill? I think the definition of success that we have for our teams is super important. And I do not think that winning is the be all end all definition of success, especially at the U14 age. Like it takes time to learn a skill well. It takes time to be able to learn how to perform at a higher rate. Um, and I think that's super tough to be able to convince athletes, to be able to convince parents, to be able to, to convince the, the club that you're working for, the high school that you're working for, the university that you're working for. Um, but I do believe that if we go about it the right way, if we provide these opportunities for the athletes, that that success will come. But if we have too much thought or too much pressure of we do need to succeed, that is where the learning, it doesn't take place. So I think like my other answer is it's 50-50. Like we need to be able to learn something and get better at learning something and hope that it will lead to better success. 
So one thing that I, I really got switched on to, and I want to know what, what your philosophy would be or what you're learning about motor learning is, but uh, again, I don't like playing for the sake of playing. I don't think scrimmaging just helps athletes learn where I, I'm a little bit more of the approach like the, I don't like the name of it, constraints-led approach like CLA games, but where do you stand on that? Because I think it's important that it, it let's use another beach example because that, that's my area right now. But if, if we're working on digging the high line role and we want the athlete to work on sprinting, diving, getting up and getting a kill, if I just let them play for the sake of playing for our whole session, maybe the athletes only do it like four or five times, maybe eight or nine times throughout the practice versus if I design a CLA that still has some random components or still has the right principles, I can almost manufacture that that situation will happen 20, 25 times, 30 times, whatever the plan is, right? So where would you stand on that, that it's, it's not completely random, that it's structured a little bit, but at least it gets the rep or the focus or the tactical stuff that we're working on, right? Right. So, um, yeah, I think there's a super important purpose of just random gameplay, but I do think that if we can design our drills in a way that is as game-like as possible, but still trying to get the focus that we're looking towards. Um, I think that's super important. So I'm a big proponent of, we need to play for 20 to 30 minutes at the end of practice. I think that's super important. That's the most random play that we're ever going to get. But if we do need to work on something like digging the high line, I do believe that we need to put an athlete in a situation that is as game-like as possible, but still allows to learn or execute that skill. So maybe that for 30 minutes or whatever your timeline may be, maybe the attacking beach player is allowed to hit a high line or a sharp cross. And that is the constraints of the drill. It is still very game-like. The defender has no idea what the attacking player can do, but you have constrained the attacking athlete to only hit sharp cross or high line. So you know that you're going to get more opportunities to still be able to effectively practice the high line shot. I think that is super important. I think whatever drill we're doing, we need to provide the opportunities for the athlete to practice whatever we are doing in as much game-like situation as possible. Maybe that means that just the attacking athlete is going to receive and they're going to work on an attack and they can either pokey line or hit deep line. Maybe that's a little bit more constrained because we're still working on only moving line, but at least those game-like actions gives the attacker the opportunity to make a decision, which forces the defender to make a decision. So I do think that there's a big part of practice that needs gameplay because it needs to be as random as possible. But I do think whatever the topic or the skill of the day is, we can constrain the drill in a game-like environment to still produce the effects that we're looking for. And I think that's something that is, um, it takes more on the coach. It's a little bit more creative design. It's a little bit more thinking ahead, but I do think that those situations are the ones that pay the most dividends for the defender or the athlete. If we just do a block rep of it and then throw them into a game-like situation, that transfer is not going to, it's not going to be there for a while. So we need to try and find the middle ground that still allows that reading ability for the athlete, which is something I'm super important of and I'd love to talk about, um, but still gives them the reps that they need 
to perform that skill. Because without those reps, they're not going to be able to perform that skill properly at a high rate. Nice. Yeah. And before we get to reading, I just have one other question when it comes to like uh, our uh, constraints approach, excuse me. Um, I don't know if this happens to you, but every once in a while I'll be on Instagram and I'll just start watching drills and, and it, it bothers me, but successful teams are doing this. Olympian teams are doing this where uh, athletes in a drill, they'll run, they'll chase the high line. The dig will go to a coach who will then catch it and toss it and the athlete will hit their transition ball. And usually the explanation I get when I confront coaches who run this style of stuff is, oh, well, we need that rep. So that's why a coach is either entering balls or they're catching or tossing or, or the coach is somehow involved in the drill where I, I personally don't like that stuff. I think it takes away from the cue reading and the game and, and like the sequence of actions if you start interrupting reps with coaches. But uh, I'm curious with your experience and your education, is there a value and a time and place in this for, or or would you maybe lean towards that, uh, I don't know, Heather's in this drill and we want her to get, I don't know, four reps in a row of doing this skill, but for her to get those four balls, we need a coach to toss because if, if we have an athlete setting her live, it might take nine balls to get her four. Does that make sense? Right. Um, you're speaking my language. Um, I do think there's a time and place for it. Um, at the beginning of practice, if we're block repping something, if we're unfamiliar with a certain technique, I think it's super important to get the block reps. Do I think the block reps can be better than a coach's toss? 1000%. The specificity of our sport or how the sport is played needs to be included in every touch we take. That includes both the physical movements as well as the sensory movements. So if I'm going to do the high line dig and stand up and then do my approach and hit the ball, okay, that physical movement is still there. But if a coach is going to toss the ball or a coach is gonna just have a ball standing in their hands and then toss the ball, the, the, the sensory information of the defender has changed compared to the actual movement of a set in transition and hitting in beach volleyball. So we need to be able to couple the perception and action is what it's called to make sure that it's as similar to the sport of volleyball as possible. So if I do need to teach an athlete on how to dig high line, transition and make an attack, if I am a coach, I need to set the high ball that the individual digs, or I need to toss to myself and then set a ball. I need to make the movements of the sport of volleyball include both the physical and the sensory. So if we're tossing balls as a coach, I firmly believe that we are limiting the learning of our athletes. With that said, if we have an individual who is digging the high line and a coach sets the ball and they can hit it, they know how to perform the skill of hitting that ball in transition. I think we need to push the athlete into making it as specific to the sport of volleyball as possible. So if we do not, or if we're not, able to hit more than four balls out of nine when it comes to digging high balls and transitioning a are we focusing on the right thing or does our high ball set need to be improved and b this is also the same experience that that athlete is going to get in the game so that's good learning for them that's good learning for the attacker that's also good learning for the for the setter the attacker is going to communicate i need this ball to be in a certain spot the setter is going to get more game like reps a, it might look ugly in practice, but that's okay. Just because we're getting touches and it looks good does not mean we're learning. But if we don't get as many touches, but it's as specific to the sport of volleyball as it can be, the learning is going to be high. Awesome, as I, as I take a few notes here. Um, 
No, that that's really good. And I love how you're explaining this because I think when I was young and you get exposed as a coach to either high level athletes or high level coaches, I remember just asking a bunch of questions and, you know, you sometimes get, well, it depends, but I like how you're saying, well, it, de- it depends, but then you explain like the why, like, where are we in our development? What's the rep we're trying to create? Like, where are we in our, in our challenge zone? So I think, yeah, there's a time and place for a lot of different stuff for coaches to be creative, but I think you need to really defend the why and what is the athlete experience. So I love how you're explaining this. And it, it actually reminds me when we did have Tom Black on the show, he mentioned he'll change his methods, but the principles are the same. And if that makes sense to you, like what are some of your principles when you're designing a practice or you're encouraging other coaches when they're designing practice? Like what are some principles you have? Uh, and then you kind of can, like I said, change the method or the, the delivery of how you're going to get there. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that in each scale in the sport of volleyball, there is a critical action or two to three actions that take place that need to happen in order for a skill to take place. So let's use the skill of reception for an example. We need to be able to see the ball. We need to be able to hit the ball on our platform and the ball to go to target. There's only one actual critical action in that, which is the ball hitting our target. So if that's the most critical action, we need to A, that is our teaching point, but B, every athlete learns differently. So if that is the critical action that we believe as a coach, the ball needs to hit your sweet spot for the ball, for you to have the most control possible, then we can have different methods on trying to teach the ball hitting the sweet spot. The skill of setting the critical action, if you, your hands will tell where that ball is going to go. Your feet need to get underneath the ball in order for your hands to be as consistent as possible. There's critical actions that take place in the skill of setting, but there's different ways to teach those critical actions. And I think as coaches, we get so focused on, we need to teach an action a certain way, but every athlete learns differently. Every athlete's body moves in a different way. You look at some of the best passers of the world and they're holding their pinkies together only to make this big platform as possible. Then you look at some of the athletes in the world and they have everything is perfectly symmetrical and their pass is just as good. The ball hits their sweet spot, which is the critical action as much as possible, but they have a different method of that taking place. So I think as coaches, we need to be open to the idea of having these different methods. We believe in certain principles that it's going to allow the skill or performance to take place at a high level but just because you learned a skill a certain way does not mean that the individuals that you coach are going to learn it that same way or their body is going to move the same way. And we need to be okay with skills looking different than what we have in our models. If you look at France and on reception, they love to break their platform with their elbows to get more control with their finite movements of their hands and wrists. But then we look at the North American athletes and we like to have a strong and firm platform when we're passing. Both countries or both areas of the world believe that their passing technique is the best. They're different methods, but their principles of hitting their sweet spot is the exact same. So who's to say that just because we do something one way that another country in the world is wrong because they believe it's 100% correct just their methods are a little bit different than what we're used to. 
Yeah. And as a coach, when you're working camps or clinics or even working with high level athletes, where do you find the line with that creative freedom? Like uh, another name drop, like when we have TJ Sanders on the show, he talks about like setters have a different entry, like how they're going to receive the ball, how they face, like how their footwork is kind of similar, but some guys are unique. But it seems like their contact on the ball and the release is more similar than not. So there's definitely some principles there, but there's definitely some creative freedom. So when you're working with young athletes, how are you allowing that creative freedom versus like staying like married to these principles? Like these are the must haves. Like maybe one example in volleyball we see a lot is like, an athlete's goofy footed, maybe they're in 17 or 18 years, so the coach just lets it ride. But I, I can guarantee if that athlete was in 14 years, we'd be doing footwork drills to try to correct the footwork, right? So where, where do you find this balance and this tug of war about like, okay, that's a creative element that like works for them versus no, they're missing the principle and they need to have like this must have chunk of the skill. Uh, that's a really good question. And that's, that's one of the tough things about it is Yes, maybe they're performing at a very high rate being goofy-footed. Um, but what is their performance expectation? Or maybe their footwork coming out of rotation is different than TJ's footwork coming out of rotation one. Um, and they're still at a pretty high rate, but are they performing at the highest rate they possibly could be? So I think that's where the challenge point I bought this is, comes in a little bit. It, and that's where the difference between learner versus performer mode comes in a little bit is if they are performing at a high enough rate for their improvement or the level that they're at maybe the creative freedom is okay but if they are performing at a rate at a certain skill that isn't as high as they could be or as high as they should be then maybe we need to correct this creative freedom that we're allowing the athlete but when we do correct the creative freedom that we're allowing to the athletes, I do think that we still need to provide the opportunities for them to do that on their own, rather than a coach completely telling them exactly what needs to take place. Because their bodies will still work differently, because they will still have their own way of thinking, they do need to have the principles that are going to help them out as much as possible, but we need to allow them to experiment on something new on their own. So once again, I don't know if that answers the question, um, but I do think that that is the challenging part as coaches. Is, a, do we break the habit that they have or do we try and change something because they could get better at it? Yeah, like I find myself torn with that where I want to be athlete-centered. I want them to really like own their development, but every once in a while something will come up where, as you're mentioning, like what's the performance expectation? So an example that happened to me recently is we, we have an athlete in the next-gen program who wants to hit cross-court deep corner. And that might work domestically, provincially, like they're having success and they've had success with this, but according to the speed gun, according to what's happening with the top like 20 teams in the world right now, this athlete does not possess blow up power. They're not going to stress out or make a defender at the world tour level shank the ball. And they need to either hit the ball more in the seam or more up the sideline. Like they need to hit more extreme angle based on like their arm velocity. So would you kind of just grin and bear it a little bit and say, okay, like athlete A, you're going to have success doing this now. Or how do you kind of like lead the horse of the water a little bit more and say, hey, if you want to be a major series player, you can't hit that shot because it's not going to get it done. Like how do you let them drive the bus versus like you as the coach and you've done your, your research and you know your stuff, you can just say, no, that, that's not going to work. And here's why. That's another good question. You're, you're getting into some good questions here. This is great. Um, I think, A, if we are looking at the athlete who is goofy-footed, 
I think as coaches, we can all agree that the critical action of an attack is having proper footwork that leads to the ability to be able to hit the ball properly. So I do think that there's certain critical actions in each skill that we need to focus on. And if they aren't doing that action properly, A, being goofy footed, I think that we can automatically start to correct that movement because we know that it is a critical critical component of the spike. But I do also think that we can, what I call, well, it's called perceived autonomy. So I can try my best to tell an athlete, you need to do this, but they might not understand it or believe it. But if I can provide opportunities or experiences or the chances for them to see something done correctly and for them to wrap their mind around it themselves, that is the autonomy we're looking for. So if I'm a left side athlete and we're goofy footed, and like you said, we're only hitting a certain shot, but if I show them a video of the best athlete in the world being not goofy footed and being able to hit these different shot patterns, I think that athlete is going to pick up really quickly that they need to improve upon their skill. And because they approved, they decided that they need to change their skill, their perceived economy is going to be very high and they're going to be motivated to therefore change the skill. Even though I know they need to do it, but I have given them the reins to try and figure out that they need to change. I think that is super big and super important when it comes to learning a new skill. An athlete can think they're doing something the correct way. As coaches, we don't want to tell them this is what you need to do because they might not believe it. That doesn't help their learning. But if we can provide experiences for them to see somebody at a higher level succeed and what they could get to, they're going to be more open to learning something new because it comes to comes down to the performance levels. If they're not performing at a certain rate, you need to show them what they need to do in order to perform at that high rate. And then the athletes will believe you. Yeah, this is this is awesome. Thanks so much, man. And just to pull on your your autonomy point there, another shout out with John Mayer we had on the show, and he does a great job on, on his podcast, Coach Your Brains Out. If you haven't listened to it, I do recommend it. But uh, when I asked him about autonomy, because again, this is something that I've seen uh, abused in different coaching circles, where I think people sometimes think autonomy is you show up to practice and say, hey, guys, what are we working on today? Versus John mentioned, like, that's not autonomy. You can give people perceived autonomy and say, Hey, Matt, we're working on serving today. How many balls do you want to serve? And you go, uh, I can do six in a row. Then awesome. You're going to own your six and like you're participating in the drill, right? So what are either like principles or methods you use in your practice to, again, build autonomy and build this perceived autonomy? Because you still want to, as a coach, plan and be organized, right? But you still want the athlete to have this autonomy and feel like they're owning their development, right? Which I find like is a fine line. Big time. I think that... Um... Yeah, like you said, there's different ways to give autonomy. So if we look at research and we look at a study that involves one group getting, um, here's your ball for a, a, a putting study. You need to use this ball versus one group that is chose that they have the ability to choose what ball that they want to use. The group that has the ability to choose what ball they want to use, what color they have chosen, they putt at a higher rate than the other group that was given the ball. <laughs> so they still perform the same task as the control group, but because they had the choice of, I want to use this blue ball or this pink ball, this purple ball, they have this perceived autonomy over the ball that they chose. They perform at a higher rate. So I think as coaches, we automatically are like, okay, practice plan. You guys got to pick the practice plan. It's up to you. That is full on autonomy. And I think that that is at a high, high level 
but we can provide opportunities for this perceived economy, whether it be we're having a serve and pass day and we know that we need to work on our spin serving reception. So I put on the whiteboard, this is our float serve reception, this is our spin serve reception. What do you guys think we need to work on? And they can look at the numbers and decide, hey, we're better at float than we are at spin serve. We need to work at spin serve. So I have given them this perceived autonomy of choosing to work on spin serve rather than float serve, even though I know that that's what they need to work on. Or maybe I have two drills in my mind that I think are super important. Okay, you guys get to choose between drill one or drill two. That is the perceived autonomy. They are making a decision that they think is best for them. But as the coach, we still have a little bit of control. So athletes, I hope you're not listening to this and think that your coach is tricking you. That's not the case whatsoever. But even a decision as, okay, you guys get to start in what rotation? We're doing a serve and pass drill. Do you want to start in 6-5 or 1? What kind of float serve do you want to have first? These are all these tiny decisions that we can allow the athletes to make within our practice plan that still gives them autonomy rather than their autonomy having full control of what exactly takes place. And I don't think that we can allow the athletes to always have full control of what takes place, but we can give them the options within the boundaries of what they want to work on. And then once we get older and we start to understand autonomy and what we need to work on, then we can start to get higher and higher of what we want to do. But I do think that perceived autonomy contains boundaries, but options within that boundaries that you as a coach thinks will help them be successful. Yeah. Cause where I find like the, the coach needs to be involved. And I think going back to like our example of like eight weeks or longer to learn a new skill or just understanding like volumes and intensity, like, if you're coaching a club team and you practice Thursday nights and you ask the athletes what they want to work on and they go, Oh coach, we have a tournament Saturday. Like we need to do full gameplay for the full two hours. And all of a sudden your middle jumped 140 times that practice. That's maybe not the best recipe for success to like lead them into an all day Saturday tournament. Right. But maybe the athlete chooses that. Right. So I think having your method of like, Hey, it's a serve and pass practice. Are we working on spin server float? Are we receiving this or this? Like, I think those are, methods you can use that still give the athlete ownership over their development without like letting the inmates run the asylum right i think that's where i see it abused i don't know if you've seen it done well or seen it abused but is there maybe a practice plan uh, another example you can give us just for coaches listening that they can put in their notes here that it just here's one way you can add autonomy to your practice right now let me think well i can go one way so if we give too much autonomy if we're at u14 and we're trying to implement the idea of autonomy for our athletes, and we allow the athletes to choose exactly what drill they want to do, I don't necessarily believe that those athletes um, have enough experience to decide what drills or what skills they need to work on that are most effective to their performance. But I do think that the older we get or the more experience we have or the more self-aware that we are, um, we have that ability to understand what we need to work on. So honestly, as simple as it could be is this is the drill we're going to do, but you guys get to decide the constraints of the drill. We need to work on our middle pipe today. This is our constraint in our 66 practice. What do you think the point system should be when we're playing six on six? We're trying to focus on middle pipe. Oh, maybe we score two pipes for every middle of the court run compared to one point for the outside attack. Perfect. There's our constraints that you guys created. 
okay, you guys want to play a game or we're playing six on six. What do you want the score to be right now? Well, let's pick 19 to 60. Okay, you've made this autonomous decision to put yourself either ahead or behind. Now you feel like you're in control and you have more motivation to perform in that practice. And it can be as simple, simple, simple as that. The example that we use sometimes at UBC is, hey, we're going to lift during the holidays. Well, what time do you want to lift? Do you want to lift in the morning? Do you want to lift in the afternoons? Do you want to lift in the evenings? As coaches, we are still saying, hey, we're going to lift because this is super important to us and it's a principle of our program. But what time do you want to lift over the Christmas holidays? That allows the athletes to dictate their autonomy and choose when they want to lift. Yeah, that that's a great example because I think there's times as coaches where you might have to eat it, where you say, what do you want the score to be? And a kid can say, I want to be up 23-16. Like, is that really what's best for your development? But maybe you just sometimes say like, oh, I gave them autonomy, so we're going to go with it. Versus like, yeah, is there a lane we're in, but we're still giving them the ownership. Like, we're going to lift, and then they get the choice. I think that's a perfect example. So thank you. And um, just to circle way back, because you did mention this uh, a while ago, it feels like now, but uh, your passion for cue reading and decision-making, because I think that's hit the the coaching world in a big way. And I, and I really think Volleyball Canada is going in the right direction. And anyone who's read about, like, John Kessel and USA Volleyball, like, they've been big on this for a while. So with just the the cycle of actions and the way volleyball is played, why do you feel so strongly that like reading is like a, a big thing that's going to happen in your gym or at your practice on the beach? Great question. I'm a firm believer in if I can throw an underhand ball or a free ball to an athlete and they can perform the skill of passing, that they know how to receive a ball. They know how to perform the action they know how to execute the skill. But where we get into trouble is when we get on games and we get ace or we get we pass a one. It doesn't mean that you can't perform the skill of reception because you have showed me that you can do that movement from a perfect or an easy situation. But what comes into play is that we can't read where that ball is going to go. So therefore, we can't execute the skill. The same with blocking footwork. We can practice a middle blocking footwork all we want. But if we can't read where the setter is going to set the ball, we can't execute the skill of a proper footwork. So we need to be able to have both of those in combination in order for us to effectively execute a skill. So I think reading is part of the skill execution. When we focus as coaches, myself included, so much on the technical and tactical aspect in practice, but we forget about the read. But without the read, we can't perform that skill at the highest rate or the highest efficiency that we can. Minus the skill of serving, serving is the only close skill in our sport of volleyball. But even then, there's a couple of reads that are involved with our toss and whatnot. But if we can't make an appropriate read, we can't execute the skill that we already know how to do. And I think that's something that as coaches, we can um, understand or begin to realize a little bit more when we're designing yeah definitely like i think the the more i get into these just google searches and youtube and finding stuff and talking to experts like you i think there's a lot more that i think is a skill that can be trained than ever than i thought when i first started coaching like i think when you hear like stories about top level players like oh Wayne Gretzky just had a feel for the game well no he had advanced cue reading but i think that can still be taught and developed in other athletes right so 
how would you introduce this? Because I, I know you're a big implicit guy, but I think reading, sometimes you need to draw their attention to, like, are you looking at the setter's hands? Are you looking how they approach the ball? Like, where are they positioning the ball on their body that might give a cue to what they're going to deliver the ball to? Like, how, how do you let the athlete, like, figure out and read on their own versus, like, you're telling them and what you're drawing their attention to certain things? Like, if it's serve receive, how did the athlete toss the ball? Is it a float serve? Is it a spin serve? Like, are you queuing this up as a coach or are you trying to let this happen implicitly and just kind of let them figure it out through reps and gameplay and failure and success and everything that goes with it? Um, once again, a little bit of both, I think. So what we like to use is guided discovery where let's say I'm a defender and I'm trying to read whether an attacker is tipping down the line or hitting cross court. If I can guide the defender's eyes to a certain spot that I know is very information um there's a lot of information there if i can guide the athlete to look in that situation then at least i know their eyes are looking at the correct spot i'm not going to or what i believe is i'm not going to tell them hey if their hips are facing a certain way the ball is going to go there if their thumb down versus thumb up that's what the ball is going to go um but i believe in guiding their gaze into the correct spot but then allowing them to investigate and explore what that correct spot means. So yeah, it's one thing to look in a certain situation, but it's one thing to understand what you're looking at. So as coaches, I think we can guide their eyes into looking into a, the critical action of each skill. As middle blockers, you need to look at the setter's hands because that's the critical action of the skill. If you watch the Brazilian team, and Bruno runs into position four and he leans his back backwards, but still sets forward. He can play mind games with you, but the critical action of his setting skill is his hands. His hands will tell you where the ball is going to go. So if we can focus our eyes and look at the critical action, then as a coach, I can question the athlete and trying to understand what they are looking at. And if they understand what's going on, Hey, were you looking at his hands or what were you looking at? The athlete goes, his hands, okay, what did you see there? And they, I don't know what I was looking at. Okay, perfect, that's okay, but at least we're looking at the hands. What will help you determine if he's setting back or forward when you're looking at their hands? And I think we can prompt that thought without explicitly telling them, oh, their elbows will bolt out when they're setting back or their wrists face a certain way. That tells them the answers. But if we can push their eyes into the guided discovery of looking at the critical action of each skill, but then allowing them to investigate and experiment in that critical action. I think that's where the learning takes place. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, have you found that those questions are the best way to go about this? Because I think that's what's fascinating so much about reading in our sport is you reach a certain level and athletes are giving false information and you use the Bruno example, but heck that's that's happening at U sports if you're playing against Derek app or hooker or some other like top setters they're gonna give you misinformation and you're gonna like maybe bite on the wrong read right so is that the best way to monitor the transfer of the decision or just to be honest and have a good relationship with the athlete and say hey matt like what did you see there why did you why did you go right when he said left i honestly think so like i've heard of teams putting hats on their middle blockers so that the coach can see where their eyes are tracking but I can move my head one direction and still move my eyes in a different direction. So as a coach, I don't honestly know what the athlete is looking at, what their senses are feeling, 
what they're what information they're taking in i have no idea that's intrinsic to the athlete and i will never understand that without talking to them about it so i can look behind the athlete and oh their head went in the right direction but i don't know if they're actually looking at the right thing i don't know if they're taking in the right information so i can guide them into looking at where they need to go but i do need to question them i do need to have that open conversation and the feedback with an athlete of hey what are you getting from this information what are you picking up what are you seeing so that we can work together because without that conversation i literally we we might think we know what's going on but as coaches we can't put ourselves in the eyes of the middle blocker so we really don't know what's happening we need to have that conversation yeah and can you give us an example of how you train this because i think going back to our earlier talk about like the challenge point and maybe once an athlete understands their relationship to the ball and how they perform the skill like how fast are you moving into like a cue reading the decision making action like whether it's a young athlete or an experienced athlete like it, it sounds like you're all in on this so i'm curious how do you start building into drills as soon as possible yeah so i think that as soon as we are able to guide the athlete's eyes in where they need to be um we need to provide experiences that include more than one option so if i'm a middle blocker and i'm working on watching the setter's hands to determine where the set is going to go once i have the understanding or i'm familiar with where my eyes need to look due to questioning due to video due to just understanding what the athlete is doing their eyes are going in a certain way we need to incorporate more than one option as much as possible So if I'm only a middle blocker and the setter can only set the position 4, I know that ball is going there. So my eyes can do whatever they want, but in my mind, my brain is telling me they can only set the position 4. But if I tell the or if I create a drill or an environment that the setter can set position 4, position 2, position 4 or a pipe, position 4 or a middle ball, now the middle blocker because i know where my eyes need to look i need to make a decision so if we can always provide these random drill opportunities not even random all the time but variable drill opportunities that allows the athletes to have to make a decision ideally we start incrementally increasing all of those opportunities so maybe we start with just one because we need to train our eyes so the setter is just setting position 4 we're training our eyes over and over again that's the skill execution that's what we're working on once the eyes are at a successful rate that i think is positive i'm now going to ask the setter or i'm going to create a drill that has the setter we're working on position 4 and position 2 attacks so now the middle blocker who's working on their footwork or their reads there's not just one option they know they need to make a read first before they perform the movement but once they are better than the challenge point hypothesis or what i deem 60 40 70 30 we can progress to maybe we have three options four options why not five options to challenge the athlete why not six and seven like why do we put ourselves only in to two or three options we need to challenge the athlete with as many options as possible that will allow them to a put their eyes where they need to go but then make the correct decision needed 
This is awesome, man. I say this to a lot of our guests, but uh, it feels like every time I go down the rabbit hole and start asking a bunch of self-serving questions that hopefully our listeners get a kick out of too, but uh, <laughs> we're going to have to do part two soon because I feel like we haven't even got into yeah. it and you've given us a ton of answers here. So just looking at my notes and to wrap up here for the listeners, good thing to Google would be understanding like the challenge point. Uh, I think performance expectation would be something to study up on a little bit. Perceived autonomy, uh, understanding the critical action of skills. Is there anything else you would kind of, for, for any lifelong uh, learners out there listening that you would recommend that maybe they want to look into a little bit further that you got a big kick out of? Great question. I'm really big into the constraints-led approach right now. If we traditionally look at how skills are learned, it is very linear where, hey, we need to work on our feet, that we need to work on our sweet spot, that we need to work on whatever it may be. And once you graduate to a certain point, you move on to the next. Um, but ecological dynamics is just a fancy way of talking about constraints-led approach. Um, it's more like a map that you're trying to fill in. So we're creating an environment that allows the athletes to make mistakes and be okay with those mistakes. So maybe we turn down the wrong road and it's a dead end. And that's not how we want to effectively perform that skill. But at least we know now what not to do. And then we go back to the main road and we try and find another street, an off street that we're looking at on how to perform a certain skill. But if we can provide these opportunities for the athletes to experiment and investigate on their skill learning, um, that's the constraints-led approach. And that's what's so important. I think that's what ties everything together. We can be implicit learners. We can allow the athletes to try and learn on their own, but we need to be okay with that. We can provide the random practice, but we need to be okay with the athletes making a mistake and being able to correct themselves. We can work on the challenge point hypothesis and try and push our athletes to their limits. And when they make mistakes, they're actually learning at a higher rate. But those are all the different roads that we're taking in this map, but we're trying to complete the entire map. And that takes time. And that takes experimentation. That takes going down the wrong path. But ultimately, we're going to get to the right spot. We're going to get to the destination that we're looking for. It may take longer. But if we can include all of these things, the athletes are going to learn at a higher rate. And if they learn at a higher rate, ultimately, they're going to be able to transfer and perform at a higher rate than if we just give them the answers. And I think that that's super important. Um, and really quick, I do think the two tie together. I think if we are working on a linear way of learning where we need to work on our read, then we need to work on our footwork, then we need to work on our sweet spot, we can have that linear progression. But in between each linear point or in between each graduation point, we need to allow for that experimentation. We need to allow for the map to take them to whatever direction it may be to get them to that point rather than giving them the highway or the freeway to get there. Awesome, man. Awesome. So if you're still listening, thank you for joining us because we're we're into it here. This is awesome. <laughs> Maybe I should make this a two-parter, but no, I think our listeners can get through it even if it takes a I couple. I apologize. I apologize. I could go on it for hours. Oh, man, this this has been great. Uh, I'm to blame too. I just had so many questions and he kept saying such awesome stuff, which reminded me of new questions. But anyways, uh, one thing we're trying to make a tradition just as the closer on the show is we've learned about your, your high-level playing career. You're definitely into some good stuff in your coaching career, but uh, man, volleyball is awesome and something funny or odd must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could just share a funny story before we, we call this one as we approach two hours here on an episode. <laughs> Big time. So I was... 
super fortunate in my first year we had an assistant coach his name was dr um he came from korea to do his masters at tru uh he played for team korea i believe he he won like the best blocker of either a world championship or a world league at the time. Don't quote me on that. Um, but he was a legend in Korea. So he came to our team and helped us pretty much with the serve and receive aspect of our team. Um, and after my first year, every year at TRU or every two years, we try and have an athlete go to Korea to the, to the university that Dr. Um, um works for. It's called SKK. And we try and have an athlete go there and train with them for a month. So after my first year, um, Dr. Um had asked me to come to Korea for about a month to train with their university team. So I was 17, 18 years old, super pumped about the experience. Um, so I said, yes, automatically. So was beyond excited, got there. My dad wanted to come for the first week as well. So we went there together to kind of have this experience. Um, but as we got there, Dr. Um, he had now moved back to Korea because he had completed his master's. He said, okay, you got here super late on your day one. The time change is tough. You're not going to practice the next day. And let me, I'm going to pause right here and just say my Korean experience was amazing. They were the most respectful, honest, greatest people I've ever been a part of. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. So I really want to emphasize that um, <laughs> before we get into this into this story but the first night out yeah okay you're not going to practice the next day no big deal okay sweet sweet so he i want to show you around town you're 45 minutes from seoul so he takes us to seoul korea we're hanging out having a good time we have a couple drinks all of a sudden the night got away from us a little bit we're getting back at like 4 a.m with the coaches and a like you name it with the university they were trying to show us a good time um which was super awesome of them but then the next day I get waking up at about 6 a.m. And it's like, okay, Matt, time to go. And there was a little bit of a language barrier. Like I don't speak Korean. They necessarily didn't speak English at the, the greatest level. They were better at English than I was at Korean. So I just, okay, I'm following you. We're going on another tour somewhere. Well, they take me to conditioning practice. So I'm sitting there in practice, super tired, hung, hung over a little bit, not feeling the greatest. And Okay, let's go. Time for conditioning practice. So needless to say, I lasted about 20 minutes. Um, ended up running away, going to puke in the bathroom. Dr. Um comes out and he's like, it's okay. You're in Korea now sort of thing. And time for you to go to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first international volleyball experience. It was a great experience. Um, but they definitely wanted to see what I was made of and what I was willing to do as a North American player coming into their country. Um, but it was awesome. I, I loved it. I thought it was so funny. And they, it was kind of, it broke the ice for us because I couldn't speak their language. They couldn't speak my language, but we had a good laugh and a chuckle over this experience because I last 20 minutes in the first practice. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that one. So, man, you, you've had quite the experience and it's still going and, and it's glad to hear about your journey and everything you're up to. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. If you're ever going down the rabbit hole of motor learning and you find something cool, shoot it my way because uh, I'm all in on this stuff and it was great just picking your brain and learning about stuff. And sorry we went into overtime there. I know you're, you're busy and you got a lot of stuff on the go, but thanks for sharing all that you did with us today. Oh, good, man. Anytime. I'd love to go for it again. There's many topics that we could talk about. We could go into the deep dive a little bit more. So I'm all, I'm good to go. I'd love to do it again.
this has been a blast and I really appreciate your questions that you were asking me. They were in depth and they made me think too. And I think that's part of the learning experience. Awesome, man. Well, well, good luck with the, the VC program you're going to be a part of this summer. And then obviously you'll be back at UBC and, and uh, I like new wave and what you guys are doing and all you, that you share on, share on social. So so much good stuff on the go, but I think we'll call it there. You, you've given enough, I think, to the show today. So thanks again. <laughs> thanks, man. I appreciate it.